Genre. podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing mary larendotter from the princess academy by sharon hale and joining us for the discussion is rachel armstrong welcome rachel hello rachel i'm so glad to have you back on you were a guest on one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done crash landing on you the south korean drama that uh became one of our most popular episodes <laughs> we really oh really yes I, awesome I, I mean we, we cover so many different things but i think every once yes. in a while we hit this uh mark of being one of the only people to talk about something that actually has like a deep fandom it just hasn't been widespread enough that there's lots of podcasts talking about it like when we release an episode talking about a star wars movie or an x-men you know comic book it's really hard to make a dent in that podcast yes. space but I don't know how many podcast episodes there are out there talking about Crash Landing on You. So anyone who went looking found us talking about it. That's awesome. So I am very excited to have you back on and also to have you come talk about The Princess Academy, which is a book that has been on our to get to list for the podcast for a very long time. And I had not read it until this week uh, while I listened to the audiobook, which was a fabulous audiobook adaptation that was on Audible. Um, it was a full cast audio uh, adaptation and so it was very well done good like it had the the songs had music and everything that that you know that are included in it so really high production value and if you have an audible account it is a, one of the ones that's free like it's in that because because they have um you know the, the the library of free books for anyone who has the audible account besides the the um spending you know your your uh what is it, a credit you know your monthly credit so yeah anyone who has audible i recommend the princess academy adaptation that is on there um but why is this a text that you wanted to come on and talk about well i'm a huge um shannon hale fan i um i think i started reading her books in high school and one of my first ones was the goose girl and i just think she um does a really artful job of writing those kind of books that there's a C.S. Lewis quote that's like a good kid's book, a good children's book is a book you can read at as an, an adult, you know? And, um, and she has, I feel like she has this moment in most of her books toward the end where I'm like, I cannot imagine how you can successfully resolve this with all these loose threads. And, you know, it will just have to be some crazy deus ex machina to fix this. And then she totally does it in a way that feels like, Oh, you fixed that. And you like presented this new solution that I was not expecting. I think that's a good so, description yeah. because like I said, I, um, I was familiar with this as, uh, the winner of, a uh, it was a Newberry or Newberry honor. Which one? It was Newberry honor. Yeah. 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 Uh, but it was, you know, in, in that list of great, uh, kind of middle grade book, I think is where yeah. this one I think would land. Um, and there are times where, I mean, I've got kids that range from elementary school up to junior high now. And, um, I've read some middle grade that is less does does not grab me. <laughs> you yes. know, let's just say at the there's quite the a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and this one, like the whole way through, I was like, this doesn't feel like middle grade. Like this is just good storytelling uh, that that is happening. And I think that's a really successful feat to pull off as an adult author to write something that is completely accessible for the middle grade. Like nothing about about it felt yes like it was above the level of a middle grade book. But nor did it feel like anything was being written down to to a, a younger audience, which I feel that tone in some of the stuff I've read with some of my kids. Uh, yeah, said it. It kind of was like eh, this is 
I mean, it's a, it's fine, but it, it doesn't, it, you know, it's, it's not grabbing. <laughs> but me. don't name any name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but this one, like all the way through, I was like, oh, this is, this is amazing. I am fully uh, immersed in this world that she has built. And I am fully invested in the life of this uh, adolescent girl <laughs> who is going to Princess <laughs> Academy to try and marry herself off to a prince, but not really. Uh, <laughs> and I wanted to see how it all turned out. Uh, so, so well done, Shannon Hale. I don't think she needs me to praise her. Uh, she is very successful and well recognized as a quality author. But I will just, I guess, join that chorus of saying, "Well done, Shannon Hale." Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I actually had the book in my car today as I was driving my um, nephews and niece around, and my nephew picked it up and he's like, "Oh, I don't want to read this," and so he just like sat reading it. I was like, "This is awesome." Mm-hmm. This, you know, Princess Academy does not seem like a kind of book that necessarily would draw him in but she does a great job yeah my, many of my kids will listen to audiobooks as they're going to sleep and i'm going to suggest both to my daughter and my son that they they listen to to this audible adaptation that i was listening yeah to. and there's also this is the first book in a series and the second book is like so fun because it gets into all this um political messiness of this you know the, the structure of this country so it gets um way deeper into the political machinations and things. Oh, very cool. I know that, yeah. uh, is it, a, it's a trilogy, right? I don't, I online, I couldn't see if it was a trilogy, but it currently has three books. Okay. So it may just be done. Right. Uh, the second book is still also free. If you're an audible subscriber, uh, you know, you can just listen to that second book, but the third one I'd have to use the credit on, but I will pull up that second book and listen to, next. <laughs> to the next adventure of Mary here. So a little bit more info about the book. Princess Academy was published in 2005 by Bloomsbury, and it won a Newbery Honor Award in 2006 and was a New York Times bestseller. The Newbery Committee wrote that the book is a fresh approach to the traditional princess story with unexpected plot twists and a great emotional resonance. And I agree, Newbery Committee. Uh, and this is the first book of the Princess Academy series, which takes place in the fictional kingdom of, is it pronounced Danland? I can't remember. How do they say it? I I think they say Danland. Okay. Uh, it's one of those where like, yes, I listened to the audiobook uh, just this last week, but sometimes when I see the word in print, I'm like, how were they pronouncing that? <laughs> yes. Uh, Shannon Hale began writing the book in autumn of 2002 while publishing another book. She wrote through 25 drafts of the first chapter and 12 drafts of the whole book. And as someone who's tried my hand at some creative writing, thinking of going through an entire novel's manuscript 12 oh times, gosh. it's intimidating. And uh, I mean, this this book is very tight in that there's some reveals at the end that definitely could have felt deus ex machina like you said yeah but she actually did plant those seeds way earlier so it didn't feel like this is coming out of nowhere um and i think that's the kind of magic that you can pull off when you have written 12 drafts and you like you know exactly where the end is it's like okay i need to introduce this enough that it doesn't feel um choreographed to the reader but also that doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere yeah and it's so interesting because i feel like you know, you get a few drafts in and all of a sudden you're like, I don't even know what this story is about anymore. <laughs> you know, there's an opportunity to just go right off the rails. Um, so that's definitely a direction she could have gone. Yeah. So. Uh, the first book has since been adapted into a play performed at Brigham Young University in 2015 and a musical by the Kensington Theater Company in South Jordan, Utah. And uh, Rachel, I just want to thank you for all this uh, info and trivia that I'm going to be sharing. Uh, And you also wrote a glorious synopsis that I will let you read off. Um, But I'll run through this trivia as well. So Princess Academy was inspired by a conversation Shannon Hale had with her husband, Dean, about a book he'd read in which the main character was the tutor to some princesses. When Shannon Hale began writing the book, she and her husband had just been laid off from their jobs. And Shannon Hale was working.
working with a publisher on finishing the book Enna Burning, which is in her Books of Bairn series. Hale began work as an instructional designer at an e-learning firm, and while on maternity leave with her son in December two, of 2003, she finished the first draft of the Princess Academy. And that's one of those dates, like 2003 is one of those years that feels like not that long ago, but also I need to like intellectually acknowledge 20 years ago. Yeah, um, <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. I totally forgot. <laughs> Uh, the food and names in the book were both inspired by Shannon Hale's heritage. The food was drawn from medieval Danish cookbooks, and the names of the characters were Scandinavian. Shannon Hale wrote that Miri's view on Mount Eskel was inspired by an experience she had on a mountain in southern Utah. She wrote, No civilization within binocular range, just treeless mountains rolling out from every side, some brown, some gray, some purple. We pulled over, stepped out of the car, and my heart ached because I felt I could not understand just how beautiful it was. Once again, Jenna Hill's a good writer. I mean, that's just her describing yeah. <laughs> a stop on a, on a road trip. <laughs> uh, when Hale received a 5 a.m. phone call that Princess Academy had been awarded the Newberry Honor, she cried on the speakerphone with the Newberry Committee. She recounted that experience in a fun blog post that I will put in the show notes, a link to that blog post. Awesome. Ah, oh, this just makes me like more invested in the book, like reading all this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just finished the first draft of a book that I'm writing and um, it has really... I've written some things before, but actually having finished a first draft and working through that, I'm like, how did she possibly, like, how did she make us care about this person who is not real? <laughs> like, <laughs> how did she make these descriptions so easy to see? You know, you just kind of start picking at the technical things to mm -hmm. try to figure that out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. All right, well, before we move on to the full plot synopsis, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and for listening, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we aren't yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And we are also, at least for the foreseeable future, giving updates on our fantasy box office game for 2022. Fingers crossed that that can carry yeah. on. <laughs> And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on the podcast. All right, uh, Rachel, you have written the, the summary, and I will let you read that. And this is so detailed. I love it. <laughs> it's so great. Yeah, I'll try to read it fast. I'm just going <clears> to <throat> prepare myself. Okay. Miri, Lauren daughter, is 14. She lives with her older sister, Marta, and her father, Lauren, on Mount Eskel in the country of Danland. The people of Mount Eskel work in the nearby quarry, mining linder, a white stone used in the building of noble houses in the lowlands and in the capital of Danland. The work is hard and trading to the remote village is scarce. The villagers at Mount Eskel live with their goats to keep warm and often they go without food in between trading days. Mary has never been allowed to work in the quarry, unlike her peers, for reasons her father has chosen not to share with her. She's come to the conclusion that her father thinks she's too small and useless to work in the quarry, and Mary feels isolated as she cares for the family goats and does household jobs usually reserved for the young or very old. She's also starting to feel confusing romantic feelings toward her friend Pater, who sometimes watches the goats with her. On the last trading day before winter snows close the mountain paths, a delegate from the capital accompanies the lowlander traders, which is traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, <laughs> not traitors, which no, wait for is it. very, yeah, very confusing. <laughs> the delegate announces that Prince Stefan will choose, or Stefan, I'm not sure, Stefan, will choose his bride from the girls of Mount Eskel based on an old rite performed by the, the priests of the creator god. 
The Princess Academy that is set up after each announcement is usually perfunctory, but because Mount Eskel is an outlying territory and has no noble families, the girls are ordered to attend a Princess Academy for a year before they meet Prince Stefan at a ball, and he makes his choice of whom to marry. The villagers are dubious about the idea that one of them will actually become royalty, as the lowland traders often treat them with contempt. Trading goes poorly for the villagers, and the next day royal guards enforce the decree that girls younger than Prince Stefan attend the academy. The villagers initially rebel against this, but after counseling together, they decide to let the girls go. Miri's sister Marta is older than the prince, so Miri will be attending the academy without her. Britta, a lowlander who recently lost her parents and moved to Mount Eskel, will be attending the academy even though she's not really from the village. Miri wishes her father would have refused to let her go and let her know that not only does he love her, but he also values her contributions to their family. The girls travel three hours to reach the old stone minister's house, which is the only building they've seen with polished linder. Their tutor, Olana, treats them with contempt and enacts harsh punishments. On the first day of class, when a 12-year-old girl named Gertie speaks out of turn, Olana forces her to sit in a closet as punishment. At the end of the first week, the girls are excited to return home for the rest day. Miri decides to help Gertie when she can see Gertie is falling behind while learning reading, but Olana punishes Miri for speaking out of turn and Gertie for being spoken to. Miri, indignant, tries to convince the 20 girls of the academy to run home early with her, but Olana overhears her and declares that none of the girls can return home for the rest day. The other girls are angry with Miri, but she refuses to apologize and tries to convince them that Olana's rules are unfair and none of the girls would really be chosen as princess. An older girl, Katar, convinces the girls that one of them may become princess and the princess would be able to travel, make a difference in the world, and never be hungry. The girls decide to stay, and Miri feels even more isolated, thinking that even her childhood friends, Essa, who's paid her sister, and Fried are angry with her. Or Frid. I think it's Fred. Before the next rest day, the winter, snows co- the winter snow comes, and the girls are trapped at the academy, as the walk home is too dangerous. They won't be able to return home until spring thaw. Miri spends her time in isolation, learning to read, which she finds miraculous. She borrows Tudor Olana's books in secret, and as the months pass, she and Katar become the most likely competitors for Academy Princess. The Academy Princess will get to wear a beautiful dress and be the first to meet the prince at the coming ball. While returning one of Tudor Olana's books, Miri is discovered by the tutor and sent to the closet as punishment. When Tudor Olana fails to return within a few hours, Miri falls asleep. She wakes up when she realizes there is a giant rat caught in her hair. To comfort herself, she sings a quarry song while tapping on the linder floor. She begins to change the words to fit her situation. Soon, Tudor Olana appears with Gertie and scares off the rat. Gertie explains to Miri that she thought she heard Miri Cory speak about the rat in the closet, so Gertie ran to find Tudor Olana, who had forgotten Miri was in there. Miri is amazed that she may have used Cory speech while outside of the quarry. So in the noisy quarry, workers sing silently and out loud to communicate with each other. Miri decides to experiment with Cory speech, sending Gertie another memory of the rat. She realizes Gertie has heard her again. Miri begins experimenting with Cory speech, but she is... Um, embarrassed to talk to the other mountain girls about her theories, as she still feels like an outsider. Instead, Miri begins talking to Britta. Britta, who has been especially lonely as the only lowlander, appreciates Miri reaching out, but doesn't respond to the Cory speech Miri tries to use with her. As Miri and Britta grow closer, Miri learns that not all lowlanders are rude and dismissive. As the months pass, Tudor Olana moves on from reading to teaching the girls about poise, conversation, diplomacy, and the kings and queens. Spring holiday is approaching, and the snow is beginning to thaw. The girls are excited to go home for rest day. 
Miri is especially excited to return home because she has discovered, now that she can read, that Linder is incredibly valuable. One stone is about the price of a carriage horse, and only found on Mount Eskel. She wants to be home by the next trading day to use this new information in bargaining with the lowlander traders, who have been making huge profits off of the villagers. Tudor Olana decides that only those who pass her tests will be able to go home for the spring holiday. Only Miri and Katar pass, and Olana tells them they can go. Essa, usually reserved, defies Olana and tells her she wants to go home. So Miri Cory speaks to the girls that they should all run home together, as Olana can't stop them. Olana le- lets them leave, but yells after them that they can't return. On their way home, Miri explains to Essa and Fri- Frid what she's discovered about Cory's speech, that she can communicate via shared memories or similar memories, and that it works even outside the Cory. She also finally apologizes for getting them in trouble during the first week of school, and they tell her that they thought she was angry with them, not the other way around. When the girls get back to the village, they're just in time for the first song of the holiday. Miri is so happy to see her sister and father. She awkwardly greets Pater, and they talk about how hard the winter was. As the conversation warms, Pater tells Miri that instead of working in the quarry, he wants to be a linder sculptor. He also tells her she's the only person who knows this. When Pater asks Miri if she wants to be the princess, she reveals that she's not sure. Pater seems flustered, and as they separate, Miri tells him she thinks he's wonderful. Miri joins a village council and reveals what she's learned about the price of Linder. Some villagers are hesitant to trust this new information, but they decide to go ahead and bargain harder when the traders come. When the holiday is over, Miri and the other girls walk back to face Tudor Olana at the academy. They use the rules of diplomacy that Tudor Olana has taught them to convince her to let them in and be less strict. And she is impressed. Miri finds a carved Linder hawk from Pater on his windowsill. Tudor Olana allows the girls to go home for a week when the traders return. Armed with Miri's information, the villagers are able to make fair trades. The traders seem to respect them more as well. While moving Linder, Miri's sister Marta is injured. Miri enters the quarry for the first time, and as her father helps Marta, he sees Miri and yells at her to leave. Miri runs away but is stopped by Pater's mother, Dodor, who reveals to Miri that her mother died soon after being in a quarry accident and then giving birth to Miri, and her father feels protective of her. He doesn't think she's useless. Miri goes back home relieved. Marta's leg is broken, but she'll be okay. Back at the academy, the girls study hard and go home for more trading. More traders arrive and the village begins to prosper. As Marta recovers, Miri teaches her to read. Soon the week of the ball arrives. Tudo Alana reveals that any girl who doesn't pass the second round of tests will not be allowed to meet the prince. Miri thinks this is unfair. So she and the other girls use Cory's speech to help each other, including Qatar, Miri's competition. All pass, and when a few of the girls tie for Academy Princess, Tudor Olana allows the Academy to choose who it will be. The girls bestow on Miri the honor of being Academy Princess, and later Miri finds Katar crying. Katar reveals she hates living on the mountain and just wants a way out. Many servants come to the building to prepare for the prince's arrival and the ball. On the day the girls meet the prince, Britta is sick and decides not to join them. When Miri meets Prince Stefan, he is aloof and distracted. She calls him out on this while they dance, and he seems pleasantly surprised by her straightforwardness. But instead of choosing a princess, Stefan leaves the academy. He'll come back in a few weeks and do so then, or when the coming snow thaws. When Prince Stefan leaves, the girls remain at the princess academy without much to do. Pater arrives and asks what happened. Miri expresses her frustration at the prince and tells Pater they will have to wait all winter. Pater believes this frustration means Miri wants to marry the prince, and he runs back home. That same day, a group of bandits arrives on the mountain and takes the girls hostage. They hope they can use the future princess to demand ransom, but the girls lie to the bandits and say that Prince Stefan played them, asking many of them to be his wife. The bandits decide to keep all the girls hostage. After a few days, Miri realizes that the bandits aren't planning on leaving any of them alive, so she tries to incite the girls to run. 
Only half follow her, and they're easily captured. The head bandit, Dan, tells Miri that if anything else happens, he will kill her. She desperately tries Cory speaking to the village, but she's never had to do that so far. Like, so far away. She Eventually, she targets Pater and thinks she receives a memory from him in response. Just before morning, the villagers arrive. Miri wakes the girls, and almost all of them escape out a window before the bandits wake up. Most make it to safety with the villagers, but Miri and a few other girls are hostage. The villagers threaten the bandits, and a majority release their hostages and head down the mountain, ignoring Dan. Dan's hands are around Miri's throat, and she thinks she may be able to escape if he walks too close to the edge of the cliff, which is hard to see in the snow. She Cory speaks to Pater, who corners Dan, and then Miri drops to a shelf on the side of the cliff when Dan falls onto the shelf as well. Miri almost falls off as Dan pulls on her leg to keep from falling, but her father throws his mallet at Dan, and Miri watches Dan drop over the edge before she's rescued. The girls return to the village along with Tudor Olana and Nett, the academy worker. I wasn't sure how to say that. They spend a comfortable winter there with enough food and to spare, time to work and sing, and time to teach the villagers reading. Olana continues teaching, and they have a dance during the spring holiday. Pater and Miri dance together until she mentions the prince, and he can tell she's unsure. Prince Stefan returns, so the girls head back to the academy. Before they see him, Britta runs out of the room and tearfully reveals to Miri that Britta is actually a member of a noble family, and she knows Prince Stefan well. When her father heard rumblings that the next princess would be chosen from Mount Eskel, he arranged for Britta to travel there, pretending to be an orphan. He hoped Stefan would pick her and she would eventually become queen. Britta has felt embarrassed about the pretense and doesn't want to see Stefan see Stefan even though she likes him. She's worried he'll think poorly of her and won't choose her anyway. Miri realizes that she doesn't want to be princess and she convinces Britta that Britta should come back to the room and that loving Stefan is qualification enough for marrying him. When Stefan sees Britta, he lights up. He reveals he knew Britta was on Mount Eskel. He was so happy about it. When he didn't see her at the ball, he went home to see where she was and discovered she'd been sick that night. He asked Britta to be his bride and Miri is happy for them. The girls of the Princess Academy are made ladies of the princess, which means there are now nobles on Mount Eskel, and Mount Eskel is made a province. This means they'll need to send a delegate, and though Britta wants it to be Miri, Miri convinces Britta to choose Katar, who says she'll do a great job. Katar begins to cry at the news. Britta also makes her friends promise to come to the capital for her wedding in a year. She tells Miri she can help her attend university there if Miri wants to. Before the girls leave the academy, Miri visits with Tudor Olana and buys some tablets and books from her with a gold coin. Tudor Olana gives Miri a picture of a house she had told the girls would be the princess's family's home, revealing that she lied about the house, and it doesn't exist. Miri accepts the painting gratefully. Tudor Olana will be set up in a comfortable position in the capital, as she wished. When Miri gets back to the village, Pater asks her how she feels about not being chosen as princess. And when she tells him she feels perfect, he reveals his feelings for her and holds her hand as they walk to her house. He tells her that he a- he's asked his father if he can practice carving linder, and she suggests that he come to the capital when she does, so Peter can apprentice. Apprentice. Finally, Mary arrives home to her father and Marta. Sefin. How do you say that? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. That was a great summary. There's so much that happens in this book, and so often in the summary, I, I feel like I have to apologize for things that were lost, but I think you actually just crammed all this information in there, because there is all these uh, interpersonal relationships that just kind of ebb and flow and weave and, and interconnect and pay off in the end. Thank you. I thought you captured all of that very well. Rachel, one thing that I really liked about this novel is that so many of the solutions are communal. Um, I, I think there is a sense of like the 
you know, the uh, the noble or the romantic individual that is going to solve problems. Yes. And in this novel, um, both the problems that individuals are facing often need like other people to help out, but also like community wide problems. It's literally a community solution is what's needed. And I just thought that was a nice change of pace uh, to find. Yeah. And I think it's cool that um, Miri adds into that, like she has significant solutions to propose, but also, as you said, it doesn't all rely on her to fix things. Yeah. And that idea of like needing the full community buy-in, you see it work successfully when she, like, like she is the source of this idea or, or the new knowledge about how much the, the stone that they, they, um, they're able to cut out is actually worth and that they could increase the prices that they've been selling it for, but they absolutely need everyone to, to agree or it's yeah. not going to work. And you see the same kind of thing fail when she's like, okay, if all of us run, oh, there's yeah, no way that. that they're all going to catch, they're going to catch all of us. And some of us will be able to escape and get help and come back. Uh, but because not everyone buys in, <laughs> even though the plan could have worked with full buy-in, it, it fails. And so you see um, both sides of it in ways that feel, um, like, you know, this is a young leader um, in Miri who is, like, discovering her voice. And I like that we kind of see, like, some false starts in there. It's not like suddenly she, she discovers, like, this internal power within herself. And now, you know, she's going to she's gonna move forward and save the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that moment where they're being trapped by the bandits and she's trying to communicate to the other girls, like, okay, we're going to run. And it's, like, the first time not the one when they go out the window mm -hmm. and only half the girls follow. Like She made a huge decision for this whole group that has <laughs> immense repercussions. You know, like maybe it would have worked if they all bought in, but also like, yeah. how did she decide she was the one who gets to <laughs> tell them all to escape at the same moment? Yeah. You, you understand why some, it doesn't feel like a huge betrayal because it's not like they all yes. agreed to this and then some backed out at the last second. It's like, she said to them, Hey, let's do the super dangerous thing right now. Go, go, yeah. go, go, go. <laughs> and most of the consequences fall on her. Cause Dan's like, Oh, I can tell you're the instigator. I'm going to kill you if something else happens, but you know, the other people get injured. So. Yeah. Um, mm. Another thing that I really enjoyed in this book is it introduces. Uh, it's not quite like a supernatural element, but it's like an extra human element with the Corey speech. Where uh, you know they're able to give, I'm not sure how I like we want to codify that, but it introduces yeah. like, just shy of like a magic system that is present here, but it doesn't feel um, like like so much of it. It doesn't feel like too much. It doesn't feel like a Deus Ex Machina. It doesn't feel like uh, we're suddenly shifting genre because um, the genre definitely doesn't open up with a sense of uh, of something mystical or or supernatural and yeah. In, in these people, but when it does get introduced. It feels like, again, we've been told enough that it feels right, that these people have kind of this sense of communication that they don't even um, recognize is, is abnormal uh, for, for anyone else to, yeah. to be missing this kind of communication. And that's so much of the, what you were saying about community um, solutions is that they use quarry speak in the quarry when they need to tell another person like, hey, you have to lighten your load on this stone, you're going too hard and something bad will happen um they're we so strike together in unison right now yeah they use that and they, they like everyone kind of says it almost feels like well it's just like the camaraderie of working in the quarry like this is just a natural thing that develops and because she had been separated from the quarry she kind of realizes this is something more <laughs> like this doesn't feel natural to her when she first discovers it yeah and she gets to have yeah she gets to dissect it which makes 
so she understands its rules. You know, she spends a whole part of the book experimenting with it so that later she can use it in ways they never thought they just didn't even think of. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny. There's this one moment where she's telling your dad about it. And he's like, okay, well, that sounds nice. Like, it's kind of like she's saying, it's kind of like if they had cell phones with reception in certain areas. And she's like, this cell phone is really important. You know, if, if you just replace Corey's speech with modern day um, communication devices, be like, okay, well, Corey's speech is nice, I guess. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like every, everyone can do this. It's not really that special. And it takes an outsider looking in to kind of say, this is a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> that this is, that this, this exists and this functions that way, which I, I like that analogy of technology because we definitely see that where like, think back to like before we all had smartphones like that is a miraculous box that we all carry around with us yeah access the whole of human intelligence and knowledge that has been gained uh and, and we treat it so casually and it doesn't feel special anymore because it's it's been normalized to us yeah uh, to such a degree that you know you you sometimes you do need like an outsider to kind of step back and say wow <laughs> look at this <laughs> like we have people floating in space like same kind of thing like there's people living in space above yeah us in a space station and we we don't really think about it as miraculous that humans have done this because it's just been you know that's that's what we've done you know this is what we do here yeah i i love that like she can see the miraculousness of it it's kind of have you watched encanto yes it's kind of like mirabelle you know and not having the gift she gets to see how cool it is and um and also that it's not the only thing that's important about them, which mm -hmm. I guess that part isn't really related. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah. Cause in Encanto, it is like recognized as like yes. a, a very special gift. And in this, it's kind of like, yeah, everyone does this that works in the quarry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they don't even understand the limitations they've placed on it. They think, okay, it can only happen in the quarry and it's just useful in this specific moment. They don't recognize the way memory plays into it, how she can communicate a memory she's shared with someone and she can even change the words of what she's communicating instead of just a feeling. Mm -hmm. so. Another thing that I thought was very impressive in terms of, I mean, I guess the things I've highlighted so far, one is like, uh, like the individual, um, like the way she communicates and, and needs that communal response. And then like the magic system. So there's like character stuff and world building that has been impressive. And another thing that I just don't think I was expecting at all is there's like quite a bit about, how like education and commerce affects this community community yeah um, and, and like this rural uh community that has a lot of pride and a lot of sense of identity in who they are but also they've been denied things that they don't even know they've been denied yeah um, they're constantly having to deal with you know going hungry or yeah not having enough their shoes are really thin so they feel all of the rocks um, and uh, like they don't most of them don't know how to read right like it's yeah it's, they they only the lowlanders know how to read and it's not something that they even concern so like there's education issues uh that are at play and um how it all starts with like this idea of education is going to start transforming all of these things um you know for for this very small but also in terms of like the commerce of the kingdom like incredibly important yeah <laughs> outlying town uh the only place that they can get one of the most va valuable things this this stone that they, they they get from the quarry there um yeah, that kind of makes me feel like um, Mount Eskel is also kind of stands in, more Miri stands in for Mount Eskel in a way. She feels isolated from her community and she's not sure if she fits in, kind of like Mount Eskel, 
is disregarded the by kingdom, right yeah but then she, like they find out that mana skull is the only place for this special stone and Neri finds out she's you know because she doesn't have the brawn she's pretty tiny um and she she's not allowed to work in the quarry um she's able to um use her you know her brains instead mm-hmm. and uh and realizes how important she is to her community. Yeah. And I love this message that is absolutely there about like the transformative power of education and of learning um, and how the ripple effects of that aren't just, you know, picking up a book and being able to decipher the words on there. Like, you know, she reads a book about commerce and is able to alter the economic standing (laughs) or status of her her entire village. Um, And even uh, learning the history of this kingdom that, they had not been concerned with in any way, shape or form. Cause they couldn't see how it connected them. Like does F- end up affecting their lives. Uh, and I, I do feel like you get some of the, uh, you, the idea that um, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and her burgeoning education and the way that it ripples through the community and you know, her role at the end is uh, well, all the girls, right. Of, of teaching other members of their community to read and other things. Um, you can just sense that this is going to be something that's completely transformative um, for them. And, when I, you know, I started listening to a book called The Princess Academy, and uh, so much of it seems geared around, um, you know, this girl and and like this idea of the prince coming and who's he's going to select. I was not expecting, uh, you know, some major themes about uh, coming out of poverty and uh, entire, yeah. entire communities and, and the power of education. And I don't know if it's because she did twelve full drafts, and maybe sometimes she was worried about, you know, she was focusing on the magic system, and other times it was interpersonal connections, and maybe sometimes it was about how does the community be portrayed as she does the draft. But like all these things feel so fully formed and interlocked uh, in, in the way the story is presented to us that I understand why this won an award and why it, you know it became a bestseller because she is um, making everything that's present in the text feel vital. Yeah, to the reader. Yeah, it's just, I I agree. It's really incredible. Um, and I think it can only come up. Maybe there are some people who can write like that on their first draft, but I think it can only come through revision. At least that's what I'm telling myself about writing my own. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I'll find the themes later. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I've been there. It's like, okay, I've got a thing here. What am yeah. I saying here? Yeah, thing? exactly. Um, is there anything else that stands out for you particularly about this book that you want to make sure we touch on in terms of either Miri or the world that's that Jen Hale has created? Yeah, I think, you know, she spends a lot of the book being like, well, I'm not going to let them know I feel hurt because then they would know I felt hurt, you know, when she's isolated or I'm not going to apologize for that thing because I, you know, still think I should have done that thing or I'm not going to ask my dad why I can't work in the quarry because we just don't talk about it and uh so it feels very teenagery um very authentic to at least what my experience was as a teenager um and it's such a relief when she starts actually communicating with people and my um my sister loves this idea that like of living in reality like she's made these assumptions about her world and about how she doesn't have a place in it and how her dad thinks she's useless. And then when she finally talks to people, um, she's like, Oh, those things I thought were true and were shaping my identity were totally not true. And if I had just talked to you about them, maybe I could have saved myself all this pain. So I, I like that idea of living in reality. Cause so often we do shape, um, you know, based on our perception, yeah, uh, you know what wh- what the world is, and that's not at all what other people are thinking. I mean, I tell my kids this, and I have to tell myself this too. Like, this, 
when they worry about what other people think, I'm like, the reality is they're probably not thinking about you <laughs> that much. <laughs> like you're not super present in their thoughts. So just go about your day and don't, don't worry too much about it. Yeah. Which um, is a lesson I feel like I have to, yeah. Like you said, have to keep learning. And I think um, in the most recent protagonist podcast, you and um, Andrew talked about, oh yeah. From sledgehammer 44 about that. The idea that um, the moment when you realize every other person is the protagonist of their own story you have this moment of empathy where you realize like, Oh, you know, they're paying attention to them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I have, I have a very distinct memory of when I was um, 17 and being like, Oh, when this person leaves the cafeteria where I am, they don't go away and disappear. They like go do the thing they were planning on doing. (laughs) Well, I I guess I'm glad that I (laughs) had that moment when I was 17 when I was like, maybe, maybe I could have had that moment earlier. I realized, like, oh, these people are people. So, <laughs> um, but I, I think we've all probably had stories that we read where you kind of just want to say, like, have the conversation and everything will be. Oh my gosh! Like, yes. <laughs> but with the the teenage protagonist, and particularly like a fourteen year old that is like entering like real courtship, heading towards marriage, like you understand the awkwardness and you understand like the yes. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like this is um a plot device to keep people from like learning what they need to learn. Oh it yeah. It feels very real <laughs> that someone in this high stakes social situation where you're literally in competition with every girl that's around you would be playing things very close to the vest. And so would they. Yes. Yes. That's true. Yeah. It doesn't feel heavy handed. Um, yeah. Mostly my frustration is like with actual teenagers <laughs> or actually myself, I guess. <laughs> also like actual people in the world right now it's like just just talk to each other and and yes empathy learn some empathy people (laughs) yes oh man yeah yeah so i I understand the frustration you're describing oh another thing i loved um is you know we talked about how education can get you out of um you know was helpful for getting the community out of poverty i think it's really interesting when she learns some things that seem like they are the rule like tutor olana's rules of conversation she gives these very distinct rules and she says always bring the conversation back around to the other person don't give information about yourself and miri uses them in this situation with pater where she's trying to get him to open up because they've kind of been distant from each other and it works pretty well. He starts talking about himself, but then he'll ask her questions about the academy and she deflects because that's what the rules of conversation have taught her to do. And he says, why are you hedging? Why aren't you talking to me about this? And so then she starts to tell him stories. And I like the idea that, you know, she's finally in a situation where she has um, formalized schooling, but she still needs to learn that she can't take everything from schooling at face value that there are still intricacies and nuances to the things that Tudor Alana says, this is just the way that thing is. Mm-hmm. I like Tudor Alana as a character. Yeah. Um, she's interesting. Yeah. And, and it's not, I, I, it's, we were given just enough to know that that's a fully formed human over there, but we also like, don't get the full revelation yeah. of everything that she's experienced in her life. And have you ever read the book Frindle by Andrew Clements? I think I have started reading some of the first chapters of that to my kids, but I myself never finished it. I think okay. I may have finished off the book uh, for bedtime stories. Gotcha. So I'm somewhat familiar with it. 
It's because there's a there's a teacher in it. So this guy, he's a troublemaker in his class, and he decides to start calling pens frindles. Yes. Um, because his teacher fun. loves the dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and she's his adversary throughout the whole book. Do you mind if I? I guess I'm yeah, spoiling. No, no, go right ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and she gives him this letter at the be like about a month into their battle that becomes very public. There's like a newspaper writing about you know what do words mean? And eventually there's Frindle merchandise that they sell and he becomes very rich um, just off of his word. But she gives him this sealed letter and she says, at the end of this whole thing, open this. And um, he's like, how will I know it's the end? And she says, you'll know. And many years later when he's in college, he gets this package from her and it's her favorite dictionary. And he opens up, he opens it up and the word Frindle is in there. And uh, and so he knows it's the end. And he opens his letter and he finds out that while she was initially annoyed, she decided she had to play the role of adversary in order for this idea to pick up traction and to get talked about. Because she was the one saying like, okay, anyone who calls this Frindle has to go into detention. So whole classes were stuck in detention and that's what the news stories were about. And um, so I kind of wonder if Tudor Alana is doing a similar thing like maybe she's not thinking that far you know she's not as removed from the situation in that way but kind of feels like she says something toward the end with miri where it feels like she felt like she had to be um adversarial to get them to um stand up to her to take um, right, seriously to, uh, the things she was teaching like the rules of diplomacy seriously because they they negotiate like a noose new system yeah uh, which is such a great part it's so fun <laughs> i really do like that yeah uh absolutely another thing that you put in here um uh, in our in our notes is you made a note about like brains versus brawn or brains and brawn and and the way that we see different things like succeed at different points and also one thing that i thought jenna hill did very well with miri is um like miri is discovering essentially like her voice and her power and and her role um but she also encounters things that she can't handle, right? Yeah. And sometimes I think when there's kind of, uh, and I don't think this falls into this at all, but like kind of chosen one narratives, it's like, okay, well, they, they discovered they're the chosen one and now they're going to succeed at everything. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do always appreciate when there's those moments, it's like, no, this is going to work. Like I remember distinctly still, even though it's been several years since we did this book, uh, Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie, there's a, I think it's an 11 year old protagonist. And at the beginning of the book, like she's practicing with one of her sisters, like how to hold her arms so that if she's getting tied up, she could still slip out. And like, so they do all the setup of this. Uh, but then during the course of the book, like she, and there's a real murder and there's like real danger and adults, you know, doing stuff and she gets tied up and then she tries to do her trick and, and it doesn't work because it's oh. just so much stronger than her. And I just love the fact <laughs> that the author like set up like, and the reader could be kind of like, oh, I guess that could work. But then, cause it doesn't work. It's like, that's much more satisfying actually. Yeah. <laughs> this grown man tying up this 11 year old girl tied the knot so tight. She can't slip out of it. <laughs> Uh, and I think we get a few of those moments with Miri where it's like, okay, she's got the quarry speak with all of her friends and she's going to make it work. And then it doesn't work, you know, or um, she's going to be able to reach Peter. And she's like, but is she reaching Peter? Is she, yeah. is she trying to reach her father? Is it working? It's not. So it's not like um, with, with the, she is getting new powers and new skills, but it's not like everything suddenly is clicking and she is a master of these yet. And I think with this brain versus bronze, like, yeah, she's getting educated and she can change things. But also when 
some bandits come who are just big burly men with weapons they overpower the school where like all the education has taken place oh yeah i like that about that um despite all of their learning and yes she's able to escape in the end but there's all these like setbacks along the way before she does is able to use her brains to kind of succeed over the brawn yeah and there's real danger right she like gets slammed against a wall and Mm -hmm. uh, another of the girls gets tied up and she's being like kind of by her hands she's being hung from the ceiling so yeah the stakes are high so i guess just once again shannon hales you know nailing a lot of things here (laughs) yeah there's this one moment in the book where um miri mentions this one rule of conversation which is not to reject compliments and to just say thank you and i feel like i might be wrong but i feel like shannon hale put that in there because she wants some number of people to stop hedging when they get compliments and just say thank you mm-hmm. she's like if i can use this book to convince anybody that when someone compliments you not to say oh no no no, that's not true and instead say thank you like i will have done my job with this book but i mean i don't know shannon hale at all, right yeah. but i wonder if also part of that is was maybe for herself because this is right as she's becoming a successful author yes oh i like that. and it's a pivot from a career and she's probably getting like fan mail for the first time in her life uh oh, you know yeah because when you're working in it i don't think you're gonna get a whole lot of it or, or what her previous <laughs> career was yeah i um, think it was e-learning what is it instructional design instructional design right? yeah <laughs> uh you know it's, it's probably not coming quite to the same degree when you write a best-selling novel and it may be something that she had to be telling herself of like okay you know it's all right to accept that people like something i've made yeah oh i like that view of that and Um, it's crazy to me that she had to get a full-time job after she had already published her first book and was publishing a second one yeah I, I mean it's the economics of publishing is not what people crazy. think it is <laughs> yeah you know it's it, it takes a, a, a lot of successful books before you can say this is my career yeah which i mean she's done you know all the power of the world to her yes yeah um we meet so many characters and we're probably getting towards the point where we're gonna have to wrap up do you have any favorite characters that you want to make sure we dig into a little bit um i think pater is pretty fun mm-hmm. um and their interactions are pretty fun because I think um, a less nuanced uh, reading of their relationship would have the first time Peter says, like, are you interested in the prince and actually marry him? She'd just be like, no, I'm clearly interested in you. But the truth is, you know, there are things the prince is offering that Peter is not offering. And so she there are consistently sticky situations with Peter where she where he can tell that she's actually confused about that um which i think is just such a cool nuanced thing and then he doesn't um you know pater is his own well-rounded character it's clear that he has desires outside of miri he kind of blushes when these other girls show some interest in him um but then he's also he kind of reaches this moment where he realizes he really likes miri and so it's very important to him to know um what's happening with her yeah, because the other girls give him attention, and you can tell, like, he doesn't mind that. <laughs> he does not yeah, mind yeah. attention, uh, which I think is a good representation of a teenage boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it says something about Miri that she is, as, as a, I think, an adolescent, because, again, only 14 years old, like, 
she's feeling like different pools, including the idea that um, is pretty well established that she's not just interested in the prince be- for herself, but also like this would change her family's life. Yeah. Uh, and she can see huge positive outcomes for her family if she is the one that gets chosen. And, and still also like she would get to be princess. She doesn't mind that. Yeah. I, I think being able to give like those multifaceted motivations makes Miri feel like a more full character. Yeah. Yeah, and it definitely, it makes it feel like she's in a moment of change, which, you know, as you said, is what adolescence is. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like the character of Britta, and this is one of those where I said um, there's there's moments where it could feel like a little hand waviness happened to give us a conclusion that lets everyone get what they want. Yeah. But we do get all these little, like, glimmers and sl- and slivers of revelations about Britta that are hinting at something more in her past as a lowlander, right? And and so when she is the one that we discover actually knew the prince before because her family was war nobles and had kind of been in love with him as children. And, but also like she she worked herself into such nerves that she was sick the day the first time the prince comes. So we don't get the revelation then. Like it all actually works satisfyingly. Yeah. Yeah, and um and it's I think it's cool that Shannon Hale doesn't have her reveal that she knows the prince in that way until after the bandits have come. Um, because then Miri has this moment with Pater where she's still not sure if she would choose the prince or Pater. And so he runs off and she thinks, oh, once the bandits come, she realizes, oh, he's not coming back. And he knows, like, I already told him we're going to be staying through the winter. So there's no reason for them to come check up on us. So it works as a really great plot device to keep them isolated and make it so that she has to, she has to figure out Corey's speech from such a distance. Cause she's kind of cornered herself. Mm-hmm. And I think it was very early on in this episode. You said something about Shannon Hale being able to like set up a situation where you're like, how is this going to happen? And it really yes. does um, give us everything as a satisfying conclusion that Miri and Peter are together, that uh, there's education coming to the town and that uh, Britta is um, going back to where she's most comfortable uh, as a lowlander and she gets the love of her life in Princess Stefan and that's who he was hoping to see there. So the prince is actually happy instead of disappointed in everyone that he sees. And yeah, also, and Katar... Uh, Katar gets to, uh, like, like she says, this is the one that maybe was more telegraphed than anything else. Like she just wants to leave <laughs> and she yeah. actually gets that chance. Um, and maybe, like I said, maybe that one was a little more telegraphed than the rest, but still satisfying. Yeah. Um, but, and also she, you know, she was Miri's competitor for head of the class. So we get the sense that she'll be up for the job, but yeah, that one is a little more, a, a little more heavy handed. And there were, um, you know, with her, uh, like you could have seen other avenues for her to, to get that escape too. So, so yes, we get one that's satisfying, but I, I think we also were given enough options that it's not like this is the only path that could have happened. <laughs> that would have yeah. been satisfying. It's this, this finale that we do get does tie everything up pretty satisfyingly. Yeah. And, and um, it leads really well into the next book as well, because Mary's still figuring out if she wants to stay on her mountain forever or go and explore this new world that she's just discovered. Um, and that's something she's still dealing with. And it makes sense because that's a big thing, right? Is deciding where you're going to call home as an adult. Um, so it makes sense that that would be, you know, it's sort of resolved in that she feels like 
this community is her home and she belongs here. She's contributing to it. But also she has these opportunities like Britta invites her to come in a year for her wedding and she wants her to stay to go to university. So she's got these possibilities in her future. Any final things that you want to make sure we touch on in our discussion of the Princess Academy? Um, yes. So I saw the play at BYU and I went to the Q&A with Shannon Hill afterward. And I was, you know, I'd read so many of her books. I was like, I feel like I know Shannon Hill. But you're always worried when you, <laughs> you meet them. You develop a parasocial relationship with Yes, her, right? exactly. But she was, and maybe this is putting too much pressure on her as a person, but she was so funny and really articulate. And she made me laugh so hard all throughout her Q&A. It was deeply, deeply <laughs> gratifying <laughs> so and i also um she was doing a signing at this bookstore in salt lake for her um children's series one of her children's series that she does with her husband the princess in black and um i heard about it and so i went even though i had never read the princess in black and when we entered the bookstore it was just little kids um clearly she <laughs> It was a different audience, but we had my daughter there. She was less than one. She was, you know, younger than a year. And she was kind of my <laughs> cover for being I there. I'll be reading this book to my daughter. <laughs> yeah. So can you also sign my name at the front of this book? Great. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, I, li I like that story. Um, thank you so much for requesting uh, this book. Like I said, it's been kind of one that's floating out there as one, uh, you know, a book I know that is beloved and very popular. And I think it's also um, now like old enough that there's this generation of, uh, you know, adults that are starting families that's like, oh, this is one of the books that I read like a dozen times as a kid. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. I, I think it's interesting, like the lifespan of books that they get. Uh, yeah, I would not have guessed 20 years until you brought that up. It's mm -hmm. crazy. Almost 20 years. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rachel, for coming on to talk about the Princess Academy. And thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave a review. A review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com or also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jadorowski. Producer Andrew is at Disminute. Our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. And there's also a Dueling Genre Discord channel that you can find all the Dueling Genre hosts uh, there to talk about podcast episodes. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss a great character and a great story. So I'm here. Andrew, I'm currently on my work laptop. My other computer has just finished rebooting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I cannot hook <laughs> up a microphone to my work laptop, unfortunately. Because um, it doesn't have the right kind of port. If oh I brought an adapter gosh. for my office, I could do that. Oh, yeah, you should You should have adapters. I should do that next time. Hmm. Oh, I didn't know. I haven't been at my work office for since Thursday because the kids' school got canceled. So uh, I've had to be home. So I'm currently trying to log into my regular laptop. Andrew, does my other file exist? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it's marked as offline. So let me stop the recording. Okay. See what see what it can recover.